0: You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu.
1: Okay, welcome to the colloquium tonight. Uh, The colloquium tonight is entitled The End of Virtual Digital Methods. Uh, by Richard Rogers and it's a very important aspect that Richard will be talking about, uh, namely what happens when material, analog material, moves into the digital space but even more importantly what happens when the material that more and more that we deal with is born digital. So how do the methods actually change? How do we need to think about research methods when the material is all digital? How do we research what's happening in the Internet? Uh, How do we research the cultural aspects of the Internet, of people connecting issues, of people uh, combining different aspects? How do we come up with different methods that really make sure that we can research that appropriately, but also can we just transfer existing methods, scholarly methods, into the digital realm, or do we need to develop new methods? Uh, Is it something that also the new methods might translate back into the more analog realm? So these are all the questions and many more that uh, Richard will address. Let me briefly introduce him. Uh, Richard is a professor at the University of Amsterdam, professor of media studies, and he's the chair of the new media and digital Digital culture uh, program uh, at the University of Amsterdam. He's also the director of govcom.org, and that's a group that's responsible for the issue crawler. Some of you might have seen that, a very interesting uh, visualization tool for uh, the Internet uh, and other political tools. And he's also uh, one of the founders of the Digital Methods Initiative, uh, and that's reworking uh, the internet uh, and methods for internet research. Um, He has um, published quite a few uh, books. One of uh, them is Information Politics on the Web, and that's MIT Press, uh, 2004. Uh, that was also awarded the Best uh, Book Award of the Year by the American Society of Information Science and Technology. Uh, and he's working on a new book uh, that's called Digital Methods, hence the title of tonight's talk. And that's also is going to be appear uh, at MIT Press. So please join me in welcoming Richard Rogers. Thank you.
2: What I'm going to do today um, is situate um, digital methods as an approach, as an outlook in the history of Internet-related research. I'd like to divide up the history of Internet research into largely into three eras. Um, the first being um, where we thought of the web as a kind of cyberspace. and this, and, and these particular periods that I'm going to tell you about um, uh, they're transhistorical; They overlap. But I think there have been some changes over the last 10, 20 years in how we do uh, research with the Internet. So this is what I would like to... I'd like to highlight the changes in the dominant ways of thinking. So in the early days, um, we had arguably this, this idea of the web um, as, as cyberspace, where we had a, the dominant form of Internet-related research was, was kind of cybercultural studies. And one of the interesting things about cybercultural studies um, was looking at and promoting the Internet as being something very, very different, in fact, as being a kind of other realm uh, in fact, it as being a, a, a virtual realm um, where let me see if, where at the time, the sort of seeing the web as cyberspace um, treated the, the Internet and the web as a, as a virtual realm, as something that stood apart. And also it was promoted and thought of as being quite transformative. It would transform identity, it would transform corporality, it would transform ideas of, uh, of politics, uh, etc. Now, um, around 1998, with the Steve Jones volume, uh, doing, edited, uh, doing internet research, in 1999, 2000, with a couple of uh, important, important monographs, Uh, by virtual ethnographers, uh, in particular uh, by Slater and Miller, um, they in some sense sought to debunk all of the various claims of the internet as being transformative. So in March the ethnographers first and later the the social scientists. And they surveyed and they visited uh, internet cafes um, and what they did was in some sense grounded Uh, the Internet and grounded Internet-related research. And interestingly enough, the move that they made um, in doing user studies was to go offline. So they interviewed, they observed, um, and what they found was that all of the various um, transformative qualities um, were a little bit different than one had uh, previously uh, thought. So uh, one's identity is uh, not, not just rooted in the online, but it's in fact also rooted in the offline. Uh, all of these things were a bit mixed. Um, now, <clears throat> this went on for some time, and it's still going on. The social scientific <coughs> impact on Internet-related r- research has been great. Um, but what I would like to argue is something happened sometime around 2007, 2008. Um, and this is um, the first time when um, I came up, I saw a number of the the, the developments that went on, and I came up with a term called online groundedness. And online groundedness is a term that I coined in order to um, try to think about um, research that takes data, online data, about the real um, and does research about society using the Internet. Right, so no longer is the Internet this realm apart, um, this virtual space, this cyberspace. Um, no longer do we go offline in order to find out about what's going on online, uh, but rather nowadays, arguably, uh, we've moved into a period where the online, or the online data sets, so the web is data, online data sets serve um, as um, a means to study not just online culture, but rather culture and society. So this is, this is the move um, that I'm making um, with digital methods, now let me just get uh, directly to an example, um, so you know what I mean. Um, it, th- it was in August two thousand and seven when I read um, quite an innocent article in a Dutch newspaper, and it was an investigative journalists uh, wrote that they um, were researching um, uh, Hate, basically. And the internet, of course, has always been this, uh, beginning with Kastanstein's uh, observation in, in uh, republic.com. Um, the internet has always been this, this site for, for hate and, ex- and extremism uh, research. In any case, Dutch investi- investigative journalists asked the question of whether or not Dutch culture is hardening. Um, and in order to answer that question, they didn't go native, so they didn't embed themselves like uh, journalists do, studying uh, hooliganism, for example, and writing a book about hooligans. They didn't go native. They didn't visit the the social uh, history uh, library and the special pamphlets collection and the looking up handbills and things like this. Um, they didn't interview extremism experts. They went online. Um, and they, in fact, went to the Internet Archive um, and looked at web pages and looked at Um, the history of about a hundred different uh, websites. They looked at, they compared right-wing websites, right-of-center websites, with extremist websites. And they looked and they saw that over time, the language on the right-wing sites was beginning to approximate the language on extremist sites. So right-of-center websites themselves in their word choice and in the issue language that they would use and the slogans, etc., was becoming more and more extremist. And thereby, on the basis of studying websites, they concluded that Dutch culture is hardening. Now, for those of us who have spent the last, I don't know, 10 years of hearing about and thinking about um, the web as a virtual realm, as a web as a cyberspace, as something with an asterisk on it. Uh, for those of us who've uh, only gone to the web to study online culture, this was radical. Right? So using the web to make a finding about what's going on in society. Now, interestingly enough, um, they grounded their claim, and now this is, this is, the, this is the tricky point, um, and this is where a lot of people get a little bit um, well, start asking questions, um, they grounded their claim with online data. So they grounded their claim, so the, the claim that that Dutch culture is hardening and then the, the using the data of websites, they grounded it in the online. So this is why I uh, came up with this term, online groundedness. So they used the online as the baseline, as the means of calibration, which is radical. Um, <clears throat> so I want to give you a few other examples of this just so you've seen them or just so you can think about them in these terms. Now, you will have heard of Google Flu Trends. Um, Google Flu Trends is very, very interesting um, because um, Google Flu Trends uses search engine, search query log data. Um, Those folks searching for um, flu and flu-related symptoms, online searching, their locations, um, are found, locate, they're located, um, and then the places of flu are thereby um, uh, plotted. Yeah. So they're using online uh, sort of yeah, data, data gained through what I would call registrational interactivity, data gained through search engine logs to find out where flu's at. Now the interesting thing about Google Flu Trends um, is that immediately there was an outroar. So hang on, this method... Is very very different from the traditional method. The traditional method is we rely on emergency room reports, other traditional uh, data collecting that then's fed to, then, then is fed to the Center for Disease Control and they come out with um, you know officially where flu is at and where other diseases. Are as well, um, Google Flu Trends, interestingly, and this is why there was such a great deal of interest around it, anticipates flu uh, by there's sort of seven days approximately ahead of the Center for Disease Control. However, before they could make claims about how well their their data, uh, well, how, how well they work, um, they had to they had to check it against the CDC data, right? So they had to ground, so they, they had to ground their 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 claims in the traditional uh, data. So so it's it's interesting project because it uh, finds out what's happening in society. In culture through uh, web data, yet it doesn't use the, the web um, as the baseline. Uh, so it's not grounding the findings uh, online. I just want to put up, now, I mean, this was a few, this was last year. I mean, Google Flu Trends has now expanded to something like uh, 15, 17 countries. This project's different. I don't know if you saw this um, 2009, I think, uh, the day before Thanksgiving. Um, a series of graphics were published in the New York Times, um, and what you see here um, is uh, where people were querying a particular popular recipe site, AllRecipes.com. I don't know if you use it, AllRecipes.com. I think it's probably the most popular in the U.S. Um, I mean, the, I use the BBC. I use the well. There's also Epicurious. Is the other one? Yeah. And then there's there's the BBC. Anyway. Uh, this is the biggest one. Um, and what you see here is, of course, a map of the U.S. And the darker the area, the more purple, uh, is the higher the incidence of queries for a recipe. And so this is sweet potato pie. Um, this is the day before Thanksgiving. Uh, people looking for macaroni and cheese, which I liked. Uh, sweet potato. Corn casserole. You see the corn belt. Green beans, turkey, brine, yams. So what you see here is a, is a kind of geography of taste, if you will. Geography of taste, geography of, of preference. Um, and when I was looking at this, I thought to myself, well, how else would you do this? Um, you know, we can, we can how, else, how else would you sort of chart, uh, sort of, you know, Geography of taste. I mean, we could we can get supermarket data, we could interview, we could survey, and then I thought to myself, are those are those types of activities? Are they actually fundable? Quite difficult. Uh, however, um, you know, this is this is quite uh, this will, you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of validity checking to be done, etc. But what what you have before you suddenly, is a means by which one can do uh, research about preference. Um, distributed preference using online data, which you probably couldn't do at least as quickly um, uh, uh, in any other way. Now, what I want to do very, very briefly is then contrast um, digital methods, um, which I will go into in in more detail in a minute, uh, with um, the other paradigm, if you will, um, that came out of... um, the social science of of beginning with the anthropologists, uh, and then later um, with um, a very important research program in Britain called the Virtual Society Program uh, from one thousand nine hundred and ninety seven to two thousand and two which I write about in the little book uh, uh, booklet called the end of the End of the Virtual um, This is um, these are the sort of standard ways in which one does kind of uh, internet-related research uh, with quote-unquote virtual methods, Um, and what I would like to argue is that a lot of these virtual methods um, are being in some sense ported onto or transferred onto um, the internet without necessarily the needed sensitivity of uh, digital culture. so, and, and, and increasingly what's happening uh, with these kind of methods is that what's, what's resulting are not necessarily findings or grounded findings, but rather indicators. So we live in an age where out, uh, the output of a lot of Internet-related research used, you know, using virtual methods are, quote-unquote, indicators. Um, and so what I want to talk a little bit about is how... Um, the methods might change or sh- perhaps even should change or at least how other methods can live alongside um, uh, virtual methods. Now one of the things that, that interests me um, is um, uh, fact-checking um, because fact-checking, I mean not only in the US context where uh, was it after, which presidential debate was it uh, when when factcheck.org went down the next day or that, that evening because everyone was check, checking uh, factcheck.org and then Soros took over the domain for the night and it all became quite messy um, not, and not because of fact checking and, and, and its association traditional association with the blogosphere but rather um, as an everyday sort of um, um, method, right? either for investigative uh, journalism more formally or for a lot of different work that we do um, it's interesting that, that traditionally we interview, um, and we ask at the end of the interview if it's gone well, who else should we interview? Um, and we ask the second person about the first, about what we found out from the first person, and this is how we, this is how we snowball. Now, when we think about the, the online being mixed into this, we can look up people in advance. So I don't know if you've looked up you know, me before this talk or whatever. But then the question is, does the order of checking now change? So after all of this, do you now, after the interview, do you look the person up again to check the veracity or the context of what the person said in the interview, right? So so where's the baseline? Where's the grounding going on? Um, so um, what I would like to uh, talk about is to think about... Um, how the methods, or at least how the sort of philosophy or theory of methods uh, might change if we begin to take the online a lot more seriously. If we begin to take uh, online data, web data, uh, more seriously. Now, what I would like to do is I would like to introduce to you um, a kind of methodological philosophy, um, which I have uh, called digital methods. And what digital methods does um, is it has a number of principles, um, and and the first one is, or the the major one is, is is to follow the medium, um, to follow the medium, and to think that the medium itself has uh, uh, methods built in, has inbuilt methods. Yeah. Um, so to think about uh, what the what the medium has to offer uh, in terms of methods, um, and in, and specifically digital methods has a has a particular outlook or approach. What it does, like like uh, many software projects, uh, what it does um, is it looks for what are the natively digital objects that are available. Links, tags, date stamps, edits, reversions, whatever. Loads of them. <laughs> yeah? It looks at what kind of natively digital objects are on offer online. And then it asks itself the question of how do the dominant devices handle these objects? What do search engines do with links, for example? How do the dominant devices online uh, handle these objects? And then subsequently, the question is, um, how can you repurpose um, the methods of the medium for, the, for social and cultural research? So it is the question of... Uh, looking at how do we repurpose uh, a search engine? How do we repurpose Facebook? How do we repurpose Wikipedia? How do we repurpose you name it? What can we build on top of these things Uh, or beside them? Or how can we learn from how they handle the natively digital objects? And then the tricky part comes. When we make our findings... uh, the question is, are they grounded in the online? Right, so we're constantly, play, we're constantly, in some sense, playing epistemological chicken. Do we need to go offline to ground? Or can we ground them in the online? And how confident are we when we ground them in the online? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you um, through um, digital methods from sort of like the ground up, if you will, from the sort of some of the more basic elements of the web Natively digital objects, links, tags, etc. How do you how do you study how do you study links and make findings about um, for for social and cultural research? Um, so I'll go from like the micro to the macro. So from the link, um, so how does Google or how, dominant, how do dominant how do how do search engines treat the links and how can you learn from them and what else can you do with them? Uh, the website, how does the how uh, treat the website as an archived object? Um, uh, and ask myself the question, how does the Internet Archive, how does the Wayback Machine treat websites, and, what can we, and how can we repurpose how they uh, treat websites for uh, the purposes of research? engines, uh, etc.? And what I'm going to do, I mean, I have a couple in parentheses. I won't have time to, to treat them all, but I'm going to go through the link, the website, the engine. Um, I'll just tell you um, uh, that I also study spheres, Uh, The blogosphere, the web sphere, the news sphere, the tagosphere, the image sphere, the video sphere. I see spheres as engine-demarcated spaces. Um, The webs. The web these days is no longer in the singular but rather plural, uh, largely because of geolocation technology. So we have the emergence of national webs. You're in France typing google.com and you get redirected to to google.fr. You're sent home by default. So with geolocation technology, we now have uh, the rise of webs. I'll talk about social networking sites um, and introduce you to a research practice uh, called post-demographics. How do you study Wikipedia? How do you repurpose Wikipedia? How do you repurpose Twitter? Um, These are some of the things that the Digital Methods uh, Research Program uh, does. Each of these particular... Levels, uh, if you will, um, all have associated uh, PhD candidates uh, with them, and will be attending the MIT7 uh, conference uh, um, in a couple of weeks. The link. <clears throat> how are links sort of normally studied, um, and how else can we study them using the insights from uh, from digital methods? Well, links that traditionally um, have been studied sort of like th- Yeah, two or three ways. Um, From hypertext theory, of course, you will know that the links um, have been thought of as sort of uh, paths that, when applied to the web, um, sort of authored paths uh, where the surfer surfer authors one's own story um, through the web. Um, This is a bit old-fashioned. I mean, it's old-fashioned not only because... um, um, of the fact that surfing is dead. So there is now habitual visitation of websites. People no longer surf. Um, they, however, they do wilf. This is a sort of British term, uh, wilfing. I don't know if you've heard of it. It stands for What Was I Looking For? Wilfing. Um, and also, this speaks to... Um, these sort of this, these ideas of the co- cognitive impact of uh, of the web and all of engines, uh, and also because engines increasingly organize our paths, right? So it's not it's not the surfer with the, with the, with that will, uh, but rather the engine uh, with its uh, as an ordering device. Uh, nevertheless, links are also traditionally uh, studied uh, through small worlds and, and path theory. Um, where what's studied is, is the optimal route, um, the optimal path between between two. I mean, it's it's interesting. The it was Barabasi in and um, uh, linked the new science of networks, who wrote that Clinton asked Bill Clinton asked Vern Jordan to get Monica Lewinsky a job after the uh, incident um, because Vern Jordan was. Um, had, was the closest distance um, of anyone to the uh, uh, Fortune 500 CEOs something like they calculated this? It was he was 2.2 handshakes away, and so this is this is uh, this is path. That's the path. Um, and of course, the social network uh, analysis is classic. Um, is then is then is then one's one's position. Um, Not the path, but one's position. Is one central? Is one peripheral? Is one highly, highly between? uh, Et cetera. So are you a broker? And then, therefore, are you a broker? Are you... Um, So, yeah, so this helps links, you know, and then there are other ways, of course, that sort of... But but what if we were to think it through from... Okay, wait. How does the medium... What does the medium do? How how does the medium treat links... uh, and what can we learn from them? Well, Google, as the dominant medium device, um, uh, treats links as, as reputation markers, as relevance uh, markers. Um, so uh, what we, uh, we did is we decided to capture links. Um, and this is a picture uh, from 1999. This is one of the earlier maps that we made where we're looking at how sites link to one another in a very, on a very micro, very fine-grained level. You know, you've seen these, these sort of massive link maps, right? Uh, and you're like, well, what do they say? Um, well, I mean, if you zoom, um, what, they, what they tell you about is, is a kind of micro politics of association, if you will. Um, and it's very normal as well. So who links to whom and who doesn't? The missing links. So this is a classic one. This is the, uh, the multinational in yellow links to Greenpeace. Greenpeace doesn't link back. No way. Um, and then both the multinational corporation and the, the large NGO link to government. Those are all sort of government or, or, uh, or international organizations. And government does not link back. No way. Um, and this is all very normal, um, This is a uh, picture, um, an output of the issue crawler, issuecrawler.net. It's software that I developed recently. Uh, had its ten-year uh, anniversary. Um, it's um, it's hyperlink. Uh, it's a crawler. Yeah. So you insert URLs. It crawls them. It grabs all the outlinks of each of the URLs you've inserted. And then it does hyperlink analysis. And it outputs a, a variety of visualization. This one's the cluster map. And what we're mapping here is the Armenian uh, NGO space. Um, so we inputted all these Armenian uh, NGOs. Um, and they are in blue and red. Um, and you see the network they organize, or the blue and red ones are quite interlinked. Um, and then they also link to... Um, a lot of international organizations a lot of UN organizations a lot of, and a lot of donors and funders so all the Armenians link to all the funders and donors and all the funders and donors don't link back what, the, uh, realm, issue crawler issue crawler.j mm-hmm. um, it's another map um, on, the, on the left um, is the uh, Fatah network on the right? Is the Hamas network? We took all Fatah related URLs, crawled them, um, uh, and what you see here in Fatah is, is a sort of civic web of um, links to newspapers, media sources, uh, links to uh, also uh, local NGOs as well as international NGOs. Hamas is kind of underground. Uh, very, very different, sort of underground. It links um, only to sort of RSS readers. That's a very, very different style um, of linking, indicating a very, very different style of uh, communication. And also, uh, one one can draw, I mean, if one compares um, various groups, uh, if you compare Hamas to Hezbollah, they all have the same sort of um, linking behaviors, all to RSS feeds for subscribers. Location-free. Um Hamas-related websites and Fatah-related websites. And you enter.
0: So I think there's a fair amount of constraint with the Gaza situation in terms of them, their ability to get out. So that was partially explained that sort of... Yeah.
2: Um, um, well, no, I mean, it's... A, well... Um, so... So... Uh, the Hamas has, I mean, and, and also has, and also a, l- a lot of the organizations of, of, of that RSS ilk um, have, um, yeah, it's about 10, 15, 20, 25 websites. And then they're in a variety of languages and a variety of countries, a variety of uh, top level uh, 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 domains, country domains. Um, and then when you crawl them, um, what you find is that they only link to one another and only link to RSS readers. They don't link to anything else. Whereas FATA, all the FATA-related websites, so, it, so the, you can take those those as well, um, and they, 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 they disclose a very, very different kind of network, um, linking to newspapers, a very, very different kind of info culture, if you will, linking to newspapers, to local NGOs, to international NGOs. What else can you do with links? Links. Um, uh, this is work that I did um, for the um, the Open Net Initiative, which is which is a, which is a, um, the Internet Censorship Researchers, uh, the Berkman Center, um, and um, the uh, University of Toronto. The, those uh, folks um, asked me to um, try to come up with a way in which to contribute to Internet censorship research using uh, link analysis. Um, And this particular piece of work um, was inspired by um, an observation um, that was in the Reporters Without Borders, RSF.org, Paris-based organization, an observation made in the Cyber Dissident Handbook, I think it was 2005, where the Saudi uh, Minister of Information boasted that they were blocking or or censoring 400,000 websites. Um, and the OpenNet initiative, in their traditional methodological way, um, traditional sampling operation, was checking uh, 2,000 websites per country. And so I was like, well, if, if they're boasting that they're blocking 400,000, you're only checking 2,000 per country. How do we build out the list? How do we, how do we discover previously unknown uh, censored websites? What I did is I took one of their categories um, of their websites, put it into the issue crawler, um, crawled uh, uh, the websites um, and, uh, and then I annotated it, the map. And so what you see here are nodes in red um, that, are, that are blocked, uh, censored in Iran. This is for Iran. Um, in blue, are sites that are, are not blocked, and then in red, with those little pins on them, are, are sites... Um, that we discovered were blocked previously unknown uh, censored uh, websites how do we do it um, very very simple uh, we ran them through one of our tools that we built um, um, which just checks proxies and in order to this is the this is the tricky thing right so do we confer, do, do, can we ground this um, just through this kind of tool or do we need to go to Iran and sit at a computer there and know for sure that it's blocked. In any case, what the researchers um, in Toronto, um, they were checking the BBC and they kept continually finding that the BBC was was not blocked Um, and on our link map, the BBC page um, that was linked to as being most relevant according to the network actors uh, was actually the Persian language page Um, The regular BBC site gets a response code of OK, whereas the Persian language one is uh, is blocked in Iran. Okay, I'm just going to move move along, and if there are questions, we can probably take them at the end. The website. How is the website normally uh, studied? Um, The website is normally studied in sort of usability circles. I mean, there's a debate, or there, maybe the debate's over. Um, between the don't, think, don't make me think school of thought versus the poetics of navigation. And it's sort of, uh, actually, it's, I mean, that's a never-ending debate. I guess it's not over. Uh, also, the color, uh, I don't know if you know that the web is blue or predominantly blue. Um, if you do a sort of color analysis of the web. And it's interesting because even in, se- in sector-specific areas... Um, medical sites, environmental sites you'd think they would be predominantly green but there's a lot of blue in there Um, eye tracking I don't know if people are familiar with this work Um, this is a very famous heat map um, with uh, eye tracking um, with with, um, if the more red it is the more attention to the particular spot then you see immediately the kind of you know, the sort of uh, a sense of the real estate of a, of, a, of, a, of a web page. This is a Western uh, uh, web visitor. Yeah, site optimization, uh, SEO, also um, trying to detect optimized sites, whether or not you can detect. So first of all, there's optimization, and then there's whether you can, then there's manipulation. Right? And so whether and then whether you can detect manipulation—that's quite tricky, actually. Um, whether or not you know, people say, "Oh, you know, search engine results—they're all, they're all uh, manipulated anyway." Well, um, show me. Uh, it's quite difficult. Site features. Now, this is the classic from a lot of in mean, social science and, and not even social science, um, where one makes a sort of code book with a long list of site features and you go through a, a number of sites and you check off whether or not it has a feature. And then you try to draw conclusions. Um, and some of the ones that I'm most critical of are ideas that the more interactivity a set of sites have, the more participation, there, and then the more democracy, you know, these sorts of things. Uh, anyway, site feature analysis is one of the more dominant forms of... Um, um, of analysis. Now, um, I showed you this heat, heat map. I don't know if you remember the day when Google moved its menu upper left. Um, I thought that was a sort of concrete outcome of of heat uh, of heat maps. How else to study the website? Now, um, following the digital methods, sort of principles or protocol, you think, okay. Uh, what's the dominant device um, for, and, and, and for this one, um, arguably, um, it's the Wayback Machine, of the, or arguably, it's the Internet Archive, and the way you get to the Internet Archive is through the Wayback Machine. So if you think about how does the Wayback Machine sort of organize um, uh, websites, um, well, it organizes websites, Let's see, if I, I showed you a picture earlier, no, that's not it. It organizes uh, websites. You, you type a URL, hit return, um, and you see the history of a, of a website in sort of columns, w- which ones are available. And so, what, what strikes the user of the Wayback Machine, for those accustomed to using search engines, is you type in a URL, not keywords. Um, and so, you type in a URL, you hit return, and, so, and then you get this, this single, the pages of this, of the, of the, from the past of this, of this particular of this URL. Um, so in some sense, the Wayback Machine organ- has a particular inbuilt historiography. It's a kind of it organizes the history of the web into, in, in single site history, like a kind of biographical uh, approach, if you will. Um, so, I, so, so what I thought to do was, well, what co- how can we how can we um, how can we follow the medium? How can we learn from the do- like learn from the do- dominant device that treats websites, um, and then how can we repurpose it? Uh, for the purposes of uh, social research. So I'm going to show you the outcome. It's a four-minute or three-and-a-half-minute uh, video. What you can do is you can capture a site's history and you can replay it like time-lapse photography. I'm um, showing, uh, in the sort of biographical tradition, showing kind of the life and times of a website as the history, as also encapsulating uh, the the. The, the life and times of, of the web in the classic bi- uh, biographical approach. So let me just show you, I want to preface this very, very briefly um, by saying, um, by asking you, you, do you remember the Google directory? You know what a directory is. A directory is sort of human editors organizing the web according to Subject matters, and then per subject matter, there's a series of websites. For, I mean, Yahoo pioneered this, then there was later uh, DMOS, the Open Directory Project. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, because as the years go by, um, and this is the subject of this, this short uh, sketch, people don't remember uh, that there were uh, directories um, um, because it's been taken over by the search engine. So I'm just going to play this for you. Um, 1998, all the way up until late 2007. These are screenshots of the Google interface taken from the Wayback Machine of the Internet Archive. The history of Google is important. For some people, Google is the Internet, and for many, it's the first point of access. And Google, as the face of the Internet, has remained virtually the same over the past 10 years. But there have been some subtle changes to the interface. So let's go back and Look at this in a little bit more detail. You see initially Google with its standard web search button and its intriguing I'm feeling lucky button as being your only options. Then the directory gets introduced with some front page fanfare. It's the uh, open directory project Dmoz.org, that Google's built an engine on top of. Then come the tabs. On top of the search box, with the web search being privileged at the far left, followed by images, groups that search in Usenet, and the directory makes it to the front page, tab stays. News, the Google News Service, the news aggregator was next. Frugal is introduced, that was that. Price comparison, e commerce service and that stayed in the on the front page for a while and was dropped followed by local which later became google maps and you see that the services are becoming more and more present there are now five or six on top bar and they add a more button and what we're interested in is which services remain on the front page and which get relegated to more or even more. But let's look at this in some more detail. Let's look at the fate of the directory over time. It's a story of the demise of the librarian, of the demise of the human editors of the web, and the rise of the back end of the algorithm taking over from the editors. Now you see that it's introduced with great fanfare in 2000. The web is organized by human editors. It remains on the front page. It achieves the tab status that we talked about previously. The fourth tab here. keeps its place on the front page, even as other services are introduced. However, in 2004, something happened. You got placed under the more button. You had to click more to find the directory. And in 2006, if you clicked more, the directory wasn't there. You had to click even more, and there you would find the directory. As it loses its standing, it also loses recognition. Perhaps people don't really remember that there is a directory, just like other services that have left the front page real estate. Also of interest are the services that climb from being even more to more. And all the way to the front page. But with the directory, it's a sadder story. As the interface of Google moves upper left and you click more, you see that there's no directory anymore. And there, you also see that there is no even more. So nowadays you have to search Google for its directory to find the Google directory. Interesting, maybe you saw the, um, the Google anniversary timeline, the 10 year timeline. And it was, a sort of, it was uh, something that Google made. Anyway, this was an, um, specifically an alternative history uh, to Google's history. Um, and I wanted to point out something um, about the rise of the back end, just very, very briefly. Now, if you go to Yahoo! these days um, they still have the directory It's it's, it's, a, it's becoming increasingly commercialized um, less and less robust uh, an open directory project uh, similarly not becoming commercialized but uh, fewer and fewer expert uh, volunteers anyway if you go to Yahoo what's what's interesting when, when talking about or thinking through the impact of the rise of the back end and the rise of algorithmic culture, if you, um, this is the list of human rights organizations um, uh, in Yahoo um, and you notice that I don't know if you can notice but perhaps by default they're listed by popularity by default not in alphabetical order and so the egalitarian alphabetical order listing well known from library science from the history of library science uh, encyclopedias, etc., has given way to the algorithm, to the hierarchy based on relevance, however it, in this case, uh, is measured. The engine. Second to last one. How are engines normally studied? Um, engines initially were studied Um, by the famous articles in 1998-1999, Lawrence and Giles, one in Nature, one in Science, um, as being um, not that complete in in their coverage. I don't know if you remember these. So it came out, uh, it was on all the news uh, channels, that engines only index something like 30% of the web. So the result of that was the creation of a few ideas that still uh, pervade, uh, us and and one is the dark web, right? So there is this other web, the dark web, um, which is also a sad web, because it's dark because it doesn't it's not linked to. So they are orphan sites. So there's all these sort of particular kinds of aesthetics associated with the with the dark web. Um, but the other one was more sort of kind of info political critique um, was that engines um, not only do they Provide information, but they also exclude. Right? So, so, so they exclude by not including. They exclude by not indexing, um, and they also um, bury sites you know, by not listing them very high up. That's number one. Number two, how, I mean, oftentimes engines are studying are studied according to, and this is sort of Nicholas Carr and it's very interesting ideas um, uh, that they encourage. Uh, attention deficits, you know? Like, I mean, like, yet another thing that does, right? But anyway, the engines, um, encu- in, in, the way, in the way they are used, um, encourage attention deficits. Why? Well, if you go to the studies of how engines are used, what you'll find out is that increasingly over the last, I don't know, eight years now, I think, um, um, people are, are looking at fewer, fewer engine result pages. And clicking on higher and higher results uh, um, and uh, um, one of the things that um, Nicholas Carr said, and this was not in the shallows but in the is Google making a stupid piece in the New York the in New York um, uh, asked yourself the question whether, whether you know engines and encouraging this kind of behavior and clicking you know um, um, uh, was, was uh, causing us to no longer be contemplative. Uh, Googleization. so Siva, a colleague of mine, his last name I can never pronounce, V, Siva V, uh, coming out with a book called The Googleization of Everything very soon. Um, uh, so Googleization is a term that was coined by, um, well, it's a library science critique, and it was coined right around the time when Google came up with a books project. And that was it. That's when they crossed the line. You enter the library, um, and now we're now we're going to start talking about you in these kinds of terms: uh, Googleization. Googleization uh, connotes um, globalization, uh, hegemony. You know, these sorts of these sorts of ideas, um, and thus um, turns the web more generally, and certainly Google in particular, into object of mass media critiques, right? So suddenly um, there's, there's, there's talk of media concentration. There's a political economy critique of the web. There's a dominant engine. In fact, there's a dominant algorithm. Bing and Yahoo are basically trying to redo page rank. Um, and all, the, all of the alternative algorithms uh, are in decline. Even uh, the Highly touted, uh, wool from Alpha that came out not so not so long ago, where everyone's like, okay, you know, this is old school kind of 50s sounding name, you know, it's real old information retrieval. No, um, surveillance studies, um, Google oftentimes or search engines, interestingly enough, as 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 bringing into being a new subject, um, and that is uh, the data body. Um, I don't know if I mean, this. Stuff was in the press a lot. The 2006 AOL search engine log uh, data release um, where um, at the information retrieval conference in Seattle in 2006, um, AOL labs, being good scientists, gave a gift to the scientific community and that were um, logs and a lot lot of data. Uh, 500,000 users, over three months, uh, or was it six months? Of of all their queries, and then each of the users were, um, was anonymized. A number was put to them, right? So, so I mean, ever since then, um, uh, the in search engine studies, it's this is an example of how not to anonymize. But anyway, they were anonymized with a number. Now, <clears throat> uh, just to give you a sense of these sorts of uh, user three one one zero four five, how to change brake pads, um, in Florida State. How to get revenge on an ex? How to get revenge on an ex girlfriend? How to get revenge on a girlfriend who mm, you over? Replacement bumper for Scion XP. I mean, the the intimacy um, on the one hand, um, and <clears throat> the sort of all, all the amateur detective work that was then subsequently done. I mean, people were were. Uh, figuring out who these users I mean First, the New York Times did it most famously, but then lots of other people as well. Um, so anyway, engines, by virtue of saving log files and sometimes releasing them and sometimes not, uh, not doing so well in their um, anonymization practices, create a, another data body, right? So another s- collection of data that, that, that represents, uh, represents you uh, or is you who can stand in for you um, Can have in some instances um, uh, greater agency, like in identity theft. Now, I just want to touch really, really briefly on there's a couple of sort of solutions to this problem. Um, I don't know if you ever use them or if you know about them. Uh, Scroogle. Does anyone use Scroogle? Only those are real geeky, kind of paranoid folks. Um, Scroogle is um, is, is a, sits on top of Google, and you can query it, and it, and it doesn't it it, it doesn't uh, place a cookie. Uh, it doesn't know your location. Um, it's sort of a, a covert user's Google. Um, and track me not. This is Helen Nissenbaum um, and colleagues at uh, NYU in Neil Postman's uh, former department. Uh, made a Firefox extension that um, instead of the queries se- uh, in the background when you're querying Google sends also random queries uh, to, uh, to Google. Okay, so um, how, to, how, to re- how to redo Google? Um, so I've been spending a lot of time um, uh, building stuff on top of Google and Google doesn't like that um, and they block me a lot. Um, but never, and, and I'll show you why. Um, this, um, let's see, this is more... Uh, you can zoom in on this one. D- apart from in the evidentiary arena, um, this is, I think, the, uh, the first fully documented case of, uh, of the apparent removal of a site from Google results. Um, so what you see before you um, is the page rank for uh, three websites. So the page rank, being if they're the top site, they would get the rank of one in the re- in results query. And you know engines only serve a maximum of a 1,000 results. You know, so it says 6,700,000. And then someone says, oh, it would take... 13 lifetimes to go through those results. No, they only serve 1,000 results, um, so it would take you uh, not very long. Um, these are the um, the result count, or the rank of a site uh, in Google for a particular query. It's uh, The green one is New York ti- New York City Government, the red one is 911truth.org, and the uh, blue one is the New York Times. The query is 911. So since about 2000s, early 2007 we've been saving Google uh, results for the query 9-11 and also a bunch of other queries too um, and what you see here on uh, September the um, 17th, this was in 2007 911 truth.org suddenly went from its top 5 ranking um, to 200 to off the charts and they stayed there uh, for about 2 weeks and then they returned to the top um, <coughs> So this is, opens up all sorts of questions. Um, why did this happen? Um, the interesting thing is, it, um, if you go to 911truth.org, they also noticed. And But 911truth.org, of course, um, if you uh, are familiar with them, is sort of quite a conspiracy-style organization. So they come with this you know, huge conspiracy theory of why it was that they were removed so it's quite tricky to enter into that realm um, when you have all this kind of conspiracy talk around why it is that they were removed I have I think I know why um, uh, and it has to do with the, the website uh, template um, and the fact that 911truth.org is a franchise organization so you could start one up memphis.911truth.org and then when you, when you start one up um, you automatically link to all its other franchises San Francisco, Boston, whatever, yeah. And around this time, around the anniversary of 9/11, I surmise that a number of organizations were st- another, a number of franchises were started. So it looked like suddenly, 911 truthorg and all their franchises were getting a lot of links, artificially high count, and so therefore they were demoted. That's my theory, and it is not a conspiracy theory. <coughs> um, however, we also blogged about it. Um, uh, more seriously than uh, consp- than uh, 911truth.org, so it could be that Google read uh, the blog. Um, how else to repurpose uh, Google? Um, I want to just very very briefly um, show you a new tool, and I built this <coughs> um, I think about two years ago, and now it's 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 <coughs> it's it's pretty stable. Um, it sits on, on top of Google. It's called the Lipmanian device. And um, it's named after Walter Lipman. And in fact, it, it, it answers uh, a call that Lipman made um, in um, quite a famous, um, well, it's his, not his most famous book, so the follow-up to the public opinion book. Called the Phantom Public, which is my personal favorite. I mean, uh, for Libman fans, it's probably your personal favorite as well. Um, where he goes on about uh, not only um, critiquing the means by which public opinion um, is formed, but also begins to <clears throat> um, call for um, what we ended up calling a, a equip- new new equipment uh, for the for for, uh, for, for, uh, deliberate, well, f- yeah, new equipment for interpreting and mapping societal controversies. I don't want to just tr- throw around the word democracy too easily. Uh, new equipment, um, uh, and in particular to, um, uh, provide a means by which one can get a coarse sense of partisanship. Is an actor partisan or, or not? Um, and so we built the, the Litmanian device. It has, um, <coughs> uh, it's, what it does is it, it sits on top of Google, um, and it looks at, um, it measures resonance. So I'll just show you immediately. Um, so this is, a, this is a, a source cloud, and what it shows is the number of times a particular source mentions a particular name. And, and the name in this particular case is Craig Venter. You may know him. He's the, the guy who supposedly wants to take up patents on life. Uh, the synthetic biology uh, pioneer has a few really famous TED Talks. I mean, if you, if you get into the hierarchy of TED Talks, Craig Venter um, is quite close to the top of them. But however, you see that when you... So, so what we did is we queried synthetic biology. We got, got all the sources the most important sources for synthetic biology. Then we queried each of them individually for this name. So you see a sort of huge distribution of who recognizes Venter, who mentions Venter, who, and who, who purposefully does not. Yeah? So you get a sense of the, the extent to which Ventner is important, significant, uh, per source. Let me just show you how to do this. I'm going to show you very, very briefly um, uh, about the climate change skeptics. It's everyone's favorite. <clears throat> um, what, we, what we did is we, we, we tried to find out what are the most important sources on climate change, and then do these sources recognize the skeptics? Can we figure out whether or not we can detect or diagnose skeptic-friendly sources quickly? Um, So uh, we queried Google. In fact, we queried Scroogle. This is what Scroogle looks like. The reason why we queried Scroogle is because it doesn't give you personalized results. It gives you pure Google results, if you will. There's nothing pure about Google. Um, But it gives you, and there's nothing organic about the results, nothing natural about them. They're all very highly synthetic. But anyway, it gives you uh, uh, depersonalized Google results. They kind of look like this. So what I did is I copied them, select all, copy, and pasted them into a tool called the Harvester. The Harvester is a really fantastic tool because you can paste in all this uh, stuff, including URLs, and then hit Harvest. It just gives you a clean list of URLs. This is a working tool which you can just use. You don't need logins. Yep, um, I'll tell you at the end. Digitalmethods.net. I'll tell you now. (laughs) Um, You take all those URLs, put them in the top box. The bottom box put the the names of the most prominent uh, climate change skeptics. We got these names. You can get them a variety of ways. We triangulated three uh, sources. Those sources... Uh, uh, those names found in at least two sources we retained. And there you have the graphics, the output. Um, Sally Balionis, um, uh, you see, gets uh, mentioned by hardly any of the top climate change sites. But Marshall.org stands out. Marshall.org is a major uh, skeptic funder. uh, It's... uh, uh, funds the skeptic conferences together with the Heartland Institute. I'll just show you these briefly. This is an interesting one. Climate, climatescience.gov jumps out. Yeah, so th- You can get a sense of issue commitments or partisanship uh, quite quickly per source using this technique using the uh, Lipmanian device okay the last one social networking sites how are they uh, often studied Um, the number of times uh, Irving Goffman is uh, cited in relation to social media is quite a lot Um, and presentation of self um, this kind of thing Um, that is one of the dominant approaches another one Um, is to sort of think of social networking sites um, as somehow um, reenacting different sort of cultural clashes. I mean, one of my favorite one um, is a story that was told in in one of Dana Boyd's blog postings um, about how the U.S. military uh, banned uh, MySpace and um, did not ban Facebook. And MySpace was used primarily by the enlisted folks, uh, whereas Facebook is used uh, primarily by the officers. So again, you get this sort of class struggle enacted. Um, there's also the distinction between uh, friends and friended friends. There's also the, the impact of defriending, the amplification effects, uh, these sorts of things. Um, how else might they be studied? Thinking through, following the digital methods principles of, okay, um, follow the medium. Um, what, are, what natively digital objects are available? How are they treated by the dominant devices? Um, we came up with um, uh, the notion of post-demographics. The natively, di- the sort of natively digital object uh, dominant in um, social media is the profile, if you will. You know? Now, what, what's interesting about profiles... Um, is that they provide all these different interests, kind of media interests. Um, and, um, and then um, profiles have friends. So, what we did is we created I mean, this was more of an art project, this was in a few art magazines, is we created a means by which we can um, see what the um, interests are of the friends of. Obama and McCain in this particular sense. I mean, you, um, you can... We also did what the interests are of the friends of Islam and Christianity, for, for example. I mean, it, it, you can do a range. But anyway, just give you a sense. Um, so this, is, this sits on top of... or sat on top of MySpace until MySpace changed their query string. Um, and we can't... Uh, we can't tweak it again. They kind of just shut us down, basically. But nevertheless... Um, uh, what we did is we took, the, in this case, the top 1,000 friends of Obama and the top 1,000 friends of McCain. We aggregated their profiles um, um, and we uh, then ranked the interests and, 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 and uh, provided aggregate profiles of the friends of the politicians. Um, and then we also did a compatibility check whether the friends of Obama have similar interests uh, to the friends of uh, McCain um, and we call this post-demographics. So it's this, it's 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 this, this, this stu- it's in some sense um, the study of the organization of groups, not according to age, gender, income, level of education, but rather according to the data that's regularly given online through social media, uh, interests, movies, books, uh, etc. Anyway, so. Um, I just wanted to mention, really, really briefly, um, Obama. The friends um, watch on TV: The Office, um, The Daily Show, Lost, and The Friends. of McCain are into a Family Guy, Project Runway, America's Next Top Model, Desperate Housewives. So you get a real sense, you know. And then you can you can do this. I mean, so it's like: Are there divi- I mean, you see quite a divide here, cultural divide uh, between um, but you can do this for other cultures I mean I did this also for Fatah and Hamas um, oddly enough and you see far more overlap uh, same interests same movies uh, okay just to conclude um, the uh, the idea of digital methods um, is to take seriously uh, web data and to think about um, the web not as, or the internet, not as this separate realm, not as the virtual, um, not as something that is an asterisk, not something that, uh, that you only study for its culture in and of itself, but rather to take web data seriously um, as, mean, as, as uh, means by which one can study society and culture more generally. But how to do that? Um, well, one way of doing it is not necessarily to import the standard methods or port them onto the internet because what you get are only indicators and you get a lot of problems as well Um, but rather I propose that you uh, research practice where you actually follow the medium and think about the methods in the media Um, and I have laid out for you um, uh, uh, a practice whereby one looks at the natively digital objects how dominant devices handle them um, and then how you can learn from them and repurpose them in order to, make, uh, in order to perform, undertake social uh, research. And then the last sort of trick, and it's going it's to be endlessly tricky and endlessly debated, is whether or not you can ground your findings in the online or whether you need to go offline in order to ground them. Um, if we have another chance at some other time, venue, place, um, Happy to tell you about approaches to studying these other things: Severe's, Web's, uh, Wikipedia, um, as well as uh, as well as Twitter. Um, But for now, thank you.
1: Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Um, Questions? Comments?
0: Richard, thanks very much. so one, one I'm curious, um, you, your chronology says around 2007 things change, and indeed they do in a lot of ways, and um, the tools you're showing here are, are one sign of those changes. Um, the emergence of tools like, um, oh, stuff like uh, what, News Globe, News Positioning System, Media Cloud, I mean there are dozens of these things that, are, that sort of scrape. News that sort of look at the feeds, whether it's from the world's various wire services or whether it's the destination and target cities, or how, there's very there's a lot of really interesting ways to play with the data. And I wonder if that hasn't, um, you know, this is coincident with the rise of this critical discourse of Googleization. That oh, Google's so flat and so commercial and so one size fits all. And I wonder if it hasn't been relieved of a burden to actually be sharper or be pretend to be more objective oh. or whatever that objectivity would be. I, In other words, isn't there a kind of relationship between the rise of all these highly specialized tools that allow us to make data dance and allow us to have quite a bit of independence about where we draw our data from, with, on the other hand, the kind of both demonization and flattening of something like Google? It's that relationship, I guess, I'm interested in.
2: So, yeah, thanks. So, I mean, I think what's, uh, I mean, does anyone want to answer that? (laughs) I um, think, because it's a really difficult question, I think, I, I mean, uh, first of all, um, um, Google has taken itself off the hook um, uh, recently. Yeah? And and it's and they've done so in an extremely clever way. Um, I, I, I wrote a piece called um, uh, The Inculpable Engine. Uh, and it's about Google. And the reason why I call it The Inculpable Engine is because um, now we... Are co-authors of our results, right? So, so with the rise of personalization, um, now the results are partly our own, of our own making. So, um, and then we we studied this empirically, and that's another story. But anyway, in any case, um, so 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 um, there are no longer there is no longer one set of Google results that one then can critique. Um, for the, the new hierarchies. So, I mean, this is how I started my work on information politics, as it's called uh, the book that came out in uh, 2004, 2005. I started that book with the observation um, right, around after, right around, I think it was 2003, I typed terrorism into Google. Terrorism. Um, it returned, and what I got back was whitehouse.gov, CIA.gov, FBI.gov, Heritage Foundation, uh, CNN and Al Jazeera, the top twenty, um, and uh, I was at oh gee, you know, it's just like the TV news. Um, so Google is beginning to align itself with the kind of or 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 output sources, um, which you know, which are are, are quite familiar to us, um, and so then it could be critiqued. You know? So so no longer was it the no, no, longer was the web providing the you know diversity of viewpoints, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if one saw the web as as something that was most significantly, in some sense, organized or even authored by engines. Um, uh, however, all those interesting critiques that can be made n- no longer uh, apply as forcefully because of of personalized uh, results. So anyway, so I think Google um, cleverly has taken itself off the hook. Has become Increasingly inculpable in terms of the critique of the results in a sort of info political sense. I mean, it's it's become um, uh, the object of critique in many other in many many other senses. But its core, you know, what it does, apart from serve sort of advertising, is sort serve of, you know info results. Um, so it's becoming increasingly sort of I don't know inculpable is the term that I that I that I use. Um That's one thing. But then the rise of the so this is the other thing that that, that struck me is the rise of the, of the tools um, and the, all the visualization. Um, um, so the rise of InfoViz and DataViz, right? So these are huge, really huge areas. Um, and and, um, and they're, they're only now beginning to be critiqued. I mean, there are a lot of pent-up, I think there's a lot of pent-up critique waiting to burst out. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's a well-developed here. Um, but in a lot of circles that I'm familiar with, it's like people are dying to hate the rise of Infoviz, but they don't really, haven't formulated it yet, you know? Um, well, I mean, there are a number of critiques um, of, uh, of Infoviz. I mean, and one is, one that, that, that uh, is beginning to emerge uh, for me is, um, um, is the amount of spuriousness or the, the amount of... Um, uh, this, this, it's the celebration of amateur data analysis. Is what's very, what's quite interesting, Gapminder. So with Gapminder, you can take any two variables, any two, um, any two. You might have, maybe I've made my point. Um, you know. Uh, okay. So. Um, so I mean, so so I, I mean, but the relationship between Google and the rise of, uh, of of data. I mean, Google also, of course, does a lot of data vis and infvis. But I'm, I haven't thought through that relationship yet. But anyway, are there are other questions. Feel free to bring up anything. You have a internet guy
1: probably along the lines of, of the tools and especially the critique of the visualization tools and infovis and and so on, you know as you mentioned you know this is, has has a huge rise uh, and last year we had a visualization conference on visual interpretations and actually also the critique of that here oh, at, good. At, at MIT and uh, you know Johanna Drucker you know he's is a, he's a, he's a uh, you know very distinct um, critique uh, Offers a very distinct critique of, you know, the data that's being fed into those tools, as on the one hand being already the interpretation, or not making it transparent where the interpretation part comes in. So you know, that's that's one of the questions also here. You know, sort of, uh, to what extent can we see it also in the research? What is the data that's fed into, you know, the the these tools? You know, that then give us those results. You know, that's, that's one question. Another question that I had in terms of uh, the, the, the dark side of the web. What do we do with the other
2: 70%? That, that's no longer true. Yes. <laughs> that's no longer true. If you talk to Google engineers, um, they'll tell you that they've basically indexed it all. I mean, that the web that's not indexed is only one click away. So it's, it's, all, it's pretty much all indexed. Uh, I mean, of course, that's just massive... Um, but that's no longer the case, at least according to web according to the web science I know. I mean uh, but um, uh, the, okay, so dataviz, um infoviz. So let me just let me just say a little bit about um my research practice in relation to what one might think of when one thinks of data viz and infoviz. Um so 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 number one is um, I make um, uh, bespoke tools or what Clay Shirky once called, I mean, I thought this was a very clever term uh, some years ago, and people don't use it, situated software. So it's, it's software where the research questions in some sense and the approach are all built in. Now, that's very, 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 very different from um, uh, many eyes or whatever where there are toolboxes, right? Um, so, so the, the standard way of thinking about it is that here are all these world, you know, world or whatever. Here, here's go and visualize away, um, and if and then, uh, then I mean, many as is kind of interesting because it gives everyone um, a little uh, little lesson in the kind of data sets um, that fit with, uh, that match with certain visualization types. I think that's a, one major contribution in many eyes is actually teaching that. Um, uh, but anyway, it's a, it's um, so 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 my research practice is, is very bespoke, is very situated in the sense that um, that um, uh, the, that the methods are built in and they and it's and, and they do the and then the, the other thing that's different is that they do the data collection, the analysis, and the visualization all together. So it doesn't separate. The data collection. Go out there, and you know, get the, you know, the leaves and the acorns or whatever, and bring them back, um, and lay them out, uh, and you know. So, 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 so that's that's the difference. These are all in one uh, uh, tools, um, and not all purpose. Uh, so that's a that's a, that's a really big difference. So, so um, I mean, I only showed two uh, tools. Uh, I showed the issue caller and I didn't really show you how it worked. I just showed you some output, and I showed you the money-in device, and I showed you how that what how to use it. Um, um, but if you go to digitalmethods.net, you'll notice that there are about 30 uh, tools, um, different. Uh, yeah, some are very simple. Uh, I can, in fact, I find them all very simple. They're all very simple things. Um, but anyway, they're open and and usable, and we maintain them all.
0: Data being used within the tool, the method of the method and the data together. Does that mean that it's? I make sure I understood you. It, you can only do that with born digital materials. So. You right. You can not do that with data that you've digitized. Correct. And applied a tool to afterwards. I'm really glad you said that. Yeah. Is that
2: right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, but I mean that's that's a very. I mean maybe that's something that I should make even more explicit. Thank you for that. Um, so, so all of this work that I presented to you is analysis of the natively digital. Um, I mean, I use that term. It sounds very provocative. I mean, natively digital. But anyway, um, so, but, but what that term does is it, it makes extremely clear, I hope, that it's not digitized. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the um, you know, digital humanities work uh, arguably, um, all of it, uh, or most of it, r- relies on um, you know digitized books and, and digitized. I mean, cultural analytics as an approach. Lev Manovich, you will have heard of this, perhaps. It's all digitized material. Yeah? So Rothko paintings, covers of Time magazine, yeah? and then and then we have this digitized material, and then we use which is separate data set import that into uh, visualization tools it's not the research practice that I do at all uh, I do the Ma explained it
0: <laughs> I hope although increasingly in most cultural sectors there is digitally born uh, digitally born films and video as opposed to the old yep. stuff that's been ported back over causing no end of misery for for the folks working on it so so uh, as a historian maybe just a uh, kind of a naive question but I mean, what Pentium is what ninety three, ninety four, Mosaic. Uh, so this this is we're not even talking about a twenty year window here, and you've you've mapped a trajectory of, of of kind of steps. Is what we're seeing here about the affordances of um, bigger, you know broad, better bandwidth, faster processors, the ability to manipulate uh, more more material that we have access to uh, more quickly? Is this about a generational shift? Folks who've grown up in this era and have a kind of fluency and facility that, that some of the, some other folks lack. Is it about, I mean, it seems to me that it's taking the contours of a kind of epistemological shift in terms of the what constitutes knowledge, the way we're asking questions about it. But probably a bunch of other ways to think of it, but were you to sort of look for causalities or factors that help to chart that movement from, say, the 93, 94, the emergence of the web and where we are now? Um, how would, you, how would you account for that in, in broad terms? Um,
2: so, I mean, one of the efforts, so to, I mean, I'm not going to um, kind of rehearse the, the argument that I made, but one of the initial efforts um, was, to, was to try to um, uh, show over the last, I don't know, 15 years what's changed in thinking about what to do with the internet in terms of research. Um, and I think there has been a, a shift and I, I I think that it's happened fairly recently um, whereby we, I mean, and it's taken a long time whereby we no longer um, necessarily first think about um, the uh, the internet or the web um, as being the realm of pirates, pornographers, uh, you know, rumor mongers, the jungle, the you know all this stuff. It's so it's but it's it's still there, huh? um, you know. I mean, you you hear it in in, in the arguments in Congress or, or often about you know, using these sorts of you know, oh did you get that from some blogger you know so 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 the so the um, uh, so the so the historically low epistemological value of the internet in general I think that is slowly starting to change um, um, and that 's very very recent so i i would I would say it's it's about you know uh, the the uh, um, so from a historical point of view, that the you know the the slow normalization it still has the asterisk. It's still a little bit different, but the slow normalization of this of this technology. I mean, the history of technology and the history of individual technologies. That are, I mean, you know, uh, who is the most famous historian who talked about this? Thomas Hughes, maybe. Uh, talked about um, uh, and then in science it was kuhn of course with normal science right so the slow normalization of the of the uh, of the internet um, um, and 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 then suddenly people saying okay so uh, the establishments online right? Uh, um, you know the the we can use the um, it's online is also very normal, so we can use the you know we can go online and it's trustworthy. We can go to a governmental site; it's trustworthy. We can go, you know. So that that took a while, and now um, thinking about okay, we can use the data online. That's what's different. So it's not computing power, um, although it helps. Um, I think that's different. I think it's the I think it's the mindset that's changed, or I think it's the it's so. The end. Well, I call it the end of cyberspace, or I call it the death of cyberspace. In fact, I'm a little bit more dramatic about it. I call it the death of cyberspace, and then a the number of reasons why it's died. Uh, the first, I mean, it started. I mean, shall I just briefly? It started um, when there was a lawsuit by uh, two uh, Jewish groups, Jewish NGOs in in uh, in in Paris, um, against Yahoo. Uh, because Yahoo was making available uh, on their website pages uh, for uh, Nazi memorabilia. This was 2000. And um, they were sued in in, in France. Yahoo USA or Yahoo was sued. And what came out of that um, was geolocation technology, like specifically. Um, So French users uh, would be, uh, uh, they would be located. They would be, okay, you're French so you can't see these pages. And so from there um, came sort of the rise of what I call the national webs. I didn't get into it in my talk, um, but uh, um, so what we have um, is, is slowly, you know, with the regulatory frameworks, with the, with the legal frameworks, etc., cetera, uh, uh, being applied to the Internet, we have the slow and gradual, but uh, indeed steady uh, and sudden death of, uh, of cyberspace, and I think that's the difference. Um, so cyberspace needs to die uh, before we can use the web as a data set. Um, <clears throat> I, w- I was wondering um, how we access the internet. Um, I was thinking about wireless devices. So how we access the net, would that impact um, your conceptualization of digital methods? a good question. Um, I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, I've thought about it a bit. Oh, is it a false no, no, but I mean, uh, um, so, so, I mean, uh, since I'm at MIT, to, so one thing that I will say is, um, is it's very interesting to look at um, you know, in de- in in in, developmental st- in development studies circles, um, the debate between um, uh, you know the one comp- one laptop per child versus the mobile phone, right? Um, and so, I mean, so so uh, obviously, um, if you have uh, um, far more users of mobile phones, which we do, than of uh, computers. Um, uh, then you one would think about the need to study the data generated through mobile phone use and mobile phone use mobile phone use broadly conceived, whether it's kind of internet related, mobile internet related or not, um, and, uh, and 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 uh, and and you know thinking through specifically, okay, what if we applied these methodological principles to those to that situation? Uh, so that's the challenge and that's how I'll answer your question it's a challenge
1: there might be another aspect to that because okay. uh, there's currently a debate going on you know, spearheaded by, by Tim Berners-Lee uh, that the app driven you know, mobile phones you know, are destroying the web so people are no longer using you know, search engines or, or the web in general in order to find information but highly specialized uh, apps to tap into specific uh, pieces of information that lie on, on the internet. So that might have an influence on also on, on on the research methods and also how the people how people perceive also the what's out there on, on the web.
0: It's the
1: commodified
2: side of the tools that we're all busy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or a different version of the cyber space. But I mean Tim Berners Lee is the great protectorate of the web, huh? Right. So it's like the, the, um you know i mean I, I, I there's a was that a wired article or something that the the apps are coming or i forget but it was uh, um, yeah i mean i don't i don't really have a i don't have a uh, i don't have a i don't have a view on uh on on that i mean it's more like similarly right so that so um what uh what kind of uh so are if apps become dominant or if particular types of apps then and then you can still apply the same principles. You can see the extent to which the principles will work or not continue to work. So you know, follow the medium, etc., etc. So um, if the apps, so I'll follow them. <laughs> the apps, the rise of the apps. Any other uh, anything else?
1: Otherwise, thank you very much yep, for thank the you. fascinating Thanks. talk.